Hi, folks. Welcome to the Great Conversations podcast. I'm your host, Calvin Smith, and this is where we discuss five big topics. The gospel, relevance, evangelism, apologetics, and training for Christians, and of course, all in relation to the uh, truth of God's Word in Genesis as the seedbed of all Christian doctrines. And what we're going to be covering today is the true cost of compromise to the Christian faith. And what happens when you give up the authority of the Bible and Genesis is plainly written? Now, probably some of you are already rolling your eyes because, let's face it, everybody says that they stand on the Word of God and the Bible is their authority. As a matter of fact, I mean, not everyone, but if you can, if you just went to a church website, you could basically cut and paste the statement of faith there uh, from one church to the next, and they'd pretty well be the same. But then, of course, when you ask them specific questions on what they believe about certain doctrines, et cetera, you're going to get all sorts of different answers and, uh, you know, different ways that they interpret Scripture. So here's something we're going to need to understand right away. We're, we're not going to be dealing with denominational issues here, okay, on this show at any time, today or any time. What we're going to be doing is helping Bible-believing Christians of all stripes navigate the tough issues that the culture is throwing at us right now. I mean, some of my guests uh, here uh, from time to time might express a certain flavor of Christianity or, or doctrinal stances, so to speak, but that's not what we're going to be doing and what we're going to be focusing on. We're going to be defending Genesis and seeing as how all Christian doctrines directly or indirectly are founded in the book of Genesis. Um, that's what we're going to be tackling head on and relating it to the gospel. Now, when I say that the question of origins isn't a denominational issue, here's what I hear from many Christians, okay? They'll say, look, there are many knowledgeable, committed believers that have different stances on all sorts of theological topics like bat baptisms, for example, soteriology, eschatology, etc. And the issue of origins. So when Answers in Genesis talks about needing to stand on the authority of the Word of God in the area of origins, some Christians lump these ideas together and conclude that the creation issue is, well, it's just like any other denominational issue. They don't see the various interpretations of creation, gap theory, progressive creation, theistic evolution, framework hypothesis, etc., as necessarily being a compromising or unbiblical un positions. I mean, after all, if two godly Christians are going to hold the very different theological positions in all sorts of other areas and still be seen as, you know, doctrinally sound or, or you know, part of the community, so to speak, um, and, and un uncompromising, even if a specific doctrine or, you know, is deemed incorrect by other Christians, then why should the origins issue be any different? Well, here's the difference. What those Christians may have failed to consider is the... Um, question of the source of their belief about these various positions they hold. For example, if I'm sitting around with a, a you know, a table with a group of pastors and everything's fine for about 15 minutes <laughs> until their differing opinions on, let's say, end times comes out, what would they cite as the reason for their position? What, what would their starting point or source of their belief be for their particular position? Would they be pointing to some science textbook you know, or quoting some PBS special about why they're, you know, pre-mill or a-mill or whatever? Would they be talking about Discovery Channel or Bill Nye the Science Guys, why they're, you know, going to believe in a rapture or why they don't believe in one? No. <laughs> 
each one of these men would open their Bibles, point to various texts in Scripture as to why they hold their interpretation of the topic. And the same would go for baptism or any other theological stance. Their starting point would be the Word of God. You know, what other sources besides Scripture would you use to justify your position? Well, none. But the origins issue, well, that's different. What we're dealing with here is the Christian that says, well, yeah, but my geology professor says that the earth's billions of years old, so the word yom here in Hebrew in Genesis must not mean a real 24-hour day, even though that's clearly the context. And, of course, people held to that for hundreds of years until the idea of old earth got popularized. You see, the starting point for any other position other than the biblically derived young earth creationist position never originates from the text of the Bible. For example, what about the topic of the age of the earth as it applies to the origins issue? Well, every other position on origins argues for a belief in God using millions of years to create. But where does that idea come from? Certainly not scripture. It inevitably comes from the non-biblical interpretations in various scientific disciplines that are commonly taught in the westernized, secularized school system and throughout public institutions and media outlets across the Western world. So a good question that I like to ask someone that holds to a position other than young earth creation is this. Can you name me the top three Bible passages that convinced you God used millions of years to create? Because I find that most people's lists are pretty short. You know, the most often verse that I've seen used to attempt to, you know, justify old earth is something like, you know, 2 Peter 3, 8. You know, you've heard this before. A day with the Lord is like a thousand years. You know, they're trying to justify the belief in old earth. But what you inevitably, inevitably find is if you drill down even slightly into their worldview, it is not scripture that is the source of that belief. It's instead a commitment to consider the idea of the earth as millions of years old as fact. I mean, let's look at the scripture here and read what it says in context. 2 Peter 3, 8 and 9 reads this. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord a day is like a thousand years. And a thousand years is like a day. The Lord's not slow in keeping his promises. Some understand slowness. He's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Now, first of all, the context here has nothing to do with the six days of creation. <laughs> and the passage isn't defining a day because it doesn't say a day is a thousand years. It says it's like a thousand years. And the second half says a thousand years is like a day. So which part are you going to use to try to define a day? Um, you know, in Genesis 1, for example, a day is defined as having an evening and a morning. So the best someone could say here is that the verse is teaching a day is like a vast time period and doesn't have to mean a literal day. So maybe the days in Genesis aren't literal days. But the verse here is talking about the fact that God is outside of time, that we shouldn't lose heart because God seems slow at fulfilling his promise. He's patient and he's not bound by time like we are. Peter's actually quoting from Psalm 90 verse 4 and it says this, for a thousand years in your sight is like a day that has just gone by or like a watch in the night. Now a watch in the night here 
is referring to men standing guard, standing on watch, right? You're on the wall. You've been assigned there at night. You're peering into the darkness. You can only do that for a little while. So that would likely only be a few hours. So if people are quoting these verses, if they were consistent, they would have to say that a watch in the night here, a few hours also means a thousand years, which doesn't make any sense. So the immediate context of 2 Peter 3, 8-9 is again that God is outside of time, he's not confined by it, he's eternal, and that no matter how long a period of time is from man's perspective, it's like a twinkling of the eye, so to speak, in God's point of view. So no, the Bible doesn't point to the idea of millions of years. Verses like this are always brought in after a person has come to accept the idea from some authority outside of Scripture, and then they try to shoehorn it into the Bible. These ideas are derived from things like the rock layers having been laid down supposedly slowly over millions of years, or radiometric dating arguments from geology, or perhaps distant starlight arguments from astronomy. They don't come from Scripture. Bible verses used out of context are just referenced as a kind of a biblical justification afterwards to create the appearance of deep time somehow being a biblically acceptable concept. Now, the church fathers, the reformers, and, and most Christians throughout history overwhelmingly held to the idea of a young earth until the promotion of old earth ideas originating from outside the church in the late 1700s and early 1800s uh, became popular. Prior to this, Bible commentaries didn't even reference things like a gap theory or progressive creation or theistic evolution, etc., because they, they simply weren't even available in the theological marketplace. And this is a clear indication of the fact that old earth and evolutionary ideas don't originate from the Bible. Otherwise, you know, Christians would have clearly seen them before they became popularized as a re response to accepting secular ideas in science, even though they're in total opposition to clear biblical history. So now, as we discuss the plain reading of Genesis, we're not talking about a doctrinal or denominational issue here. The message of biblical authority that the Answers in Genesis ministry promotes is a unifying message for the entire church. And we recognize that as long as a believer's starting point for their theological position is derived from the, their understanding of God's word as plainly written, rather than from outside sources and then forced into scripture after the fact, then they are standing on the authority of the Word of God, no matter how correct or incorrect you believe they are. Okay, so what is the cost of compromising the evolutionary ideas of millions of years with the plain reading of Scripture? Well, let me start by asking this question. Does the Bible teach that disease, bloodshed, violence, and pain have always been part of life and what would this say about God's character if it did? You know, the late Carl Sagan, an atheist, in his book, Contact, he wrote this. If God is omnipotent and omniscient, why didn't he start the universe out in the first place so it would come out the way he wants? Why is he constantly repairing and complaining? No, there's one thing the Bible makes clear. The biblical God is a sloppy manufacturer. He's not good at design. He's not good at execution. He'd be out of business if there was any competition. 
Now, it's actually pretty easy to understand why Carl Sagan viewed the God of the Bible this way. You see, Sagan really believed that the fossil record, with all its death, mutations, disease, suffering, bloodshed, violence, that was all represented by the supposed millions of years of Earth history, entombed in the rock, well, he also saw today's world full of the same death, mutation, disease, suffering, bloodshed, and violence. So he concluded that any God responsible for this seeming mess of life and death and suffering couldn't be all-powerful, all-knowing, and certainly not all-loving. But see, Sagan's view of God is consistent with his belief in an old earth which is the same view that the majority of Christian leaders, pastors, Bible colleges, and university professors, and authors, and conference speakers have also adopted. But a lot of them don't seem to have you know, followed the yellow brick road here as to where all this leads and how it actually affects the gospel. You see, once someone accepts billions of years for the age of the earth, whether because of belief in slow and gradual processes to form rocks and fossils and or some kind of trust in these radiometric dating methods as giving accurate ages of the rocks, it follows then that the fossil record was laid down during hundreds of millions of years before there were any people, which means before humans existed, before Adam's sin. Look, the fossil record isn't pretty. <laughs> it shows evidence of animals eating each other, of diseases like cancer in their bones, of violence, of plants with, with thorns. You know, Sagan's writings show that he was familiar with Genesis. What do you think he thought when he read that the, that the end of the sixth day of creation, God, God pronounced that everything he had made was very good in Genesis 1.31? With the millions of years having already taken place, how could a very good earth contain disease like cancer? Didn't the Bible state that thorns came after the curse because of Adam's sin? We read that in Genesis 3.18. Sagan isn't the only one to recognize the true nature of the God of an old earth. Irvin DeVore, a Harvard anthropologist, said this, I personally cannot discern a shred of evidence for a benign cosmic presence. I see indifference and capriciousness. What kind of God works with a 99.9% .9 uh, extinction rate? Well, DeVore recognizes that the fossil record is one of massive extinction. If this is stretched over millions of years, well, enormous numbers of creatures have become extinct. And if you don't have a reason like a, flood, a, a great flood you know, as judgment on man's wickedness, well, what kind of God would create that kind of scenario? The God of, the, uh, of an old earth can't be a loving God. And this issue was a major one for Charles Darwin too. It shaped the way he thought about, about life. How could a, a God of love allow such processes, you know, horrible processes and as disease and suffering and death for millions of years to create? So Christians who believe in an old earth, billions of years, need to come to grips with the real nature of the God of an old earth. It's not the loving God of the Bible. But even so, many conservatives, many evangelical Christian leaders, perhaps not having thought the arguments through, although I know some of them have, they accept and actively promote a belief in millions and billions of years for the age of rocks. And many of them have been influenced, of course, by progressive, the progressive creationist movement, 
uh, represented by its main uh, spokesperson. That's Hugh Ross. He's a fellow Canadian. You know, in his book, Creation and Time, Ross said this, could it be that God's purposes are somehow fulfilled through our experiencing the random, wasteful inefficiencies of the natural realm he created? <laughs> Can you imagine what the non-believers think when they hear stuff like this? <laughs> you see, the number one philosophical argument against Christianity is, is usually something like this. I'm sure you've heard this before. If you've got such a loving God, then why is there so much pain and suffering in the world. Well, if you believe God used billions of years of pain and suffering to create, well, you really don't have an answer, do you? You'd have to say that the loving God of the Bible used death and suffering, random, wasteful inefficiencies, like Ross just said, to create, and then call it very good. You know, it's so interesting to me that even though the liberal camp here, you know, points out the inconsistencies in holding to an old earth, they still try to cling to some kind of evangelical Christianity. I mean, why bother? Why not just go, you know, full apostate? Because you're not taking the Bible as plainly written. For instance, uh, Bishop John Shelby Spong, he's the most senior Episcopal bishop in America, stated this. The Bible began with the assumption that God had created a finished and perfect world from which human beings had fallen away in an act of cosmic rebellion. Original sin was the reality in which all life was presumed to live. Darwin postulated instead of an unfinished and thus imperfect creation. Human beings did not fall from perfection into sin as the church had taught for centuries. Thus, the basic, basic myth of Christianity that interpreted Jesus as a divine emissary who came to rescue the victims of the fall from the results of their original sin became inoperative. And elsewhere, he actually said this. The biblical story of the perfect and finished creation from which human beings fell into sin is pre-Darwinian mythology and post-Darwinian nonsense. And that's from a professing Christian. Now, the evolutionist Spong obviously believes in millions of years of earth history, right? He has no choice because evolution requires it. And just like the progressive creationists like Ross, he rejects a global flood as well because he can't have the deposition of rocks happening slowly over millions of years and then have a global flood afterwards because that would basically completely obliterate the whole body of evidence for millions of years. So they say it was a local flood. But because they interpret the rocks this way, neither Spong nor the progressive creationists can hold to a perfect world before sin. And Spong makes it clear that the God of an old earth can't rescue people from a so-called fall because in his mind, no such fall as Genesis describes actually occurred. And Spong isn't alone out there in Christendom. The recipient of the Templeton Prize for Progress in Religion, Ian Barber, Professor Emeritus at uh, Carleton College, also said this recently. You simply can't any longer say as traditional Christians that death was God's punishment for sin. Death was around long before humans, hum, before human beings. And this death he's referring to here is obviously a, a reference to the millions of years associated with the fossil record. So the God of an old earth is is one that uses death as part of creating. 
Death, therefore, can't be the penalty for sin or the last enemy, as 1 Corinthians 15, 26 says. As a matter of fact, let's read that verse in context, uh, starting at verse 21. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then it is coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. You see how clear that is? As by a man came death. So who was that man? Adam. Jesus became the last Adam. By a man came the resurrection of the dead. And the last enemy destroyed will be death because death isn't natural. Death wasn't there at the beginning. Death was an intrusion in this world. It wasn't there in the beginning and it won't be there in the end. That's the blessed hope of the Christian. I mean, if we don't cling to that, then, then what hope is there in the restoration of all things? Is it just going to be more death and suffering? But once you swallow that hook of millions of years with that big, fat, juicy worm of intellectual credibility stuck on there, well, here's an example. In 1994, Tom Ambrose, an Anglican priest, in an article the Church of England, in the Church of England newspaper, well, he succinctly portrayed the God of an old earth when he stated this. Fossils are the remains of creatures that lived and died for over a billion years before Homo sapiens evolved. Death is as old as life itself by all but a split second. Can it therefore be God's punishment for sin? The fossil record demonstrates that some form of evil has existed throughout time. On the large scale, it's evident in natural disasters. The destruction of creatures by flood, ice age, desert, and earthquakes has happened countless times. On an individual scale, there's ample evidence of painful crippling disease and the activity of parasites. We see that living things have suffered in dying with arthritis, a tumor, or simply being eaten by other creatures. From the dawn of time, the possibility of life and death, good and evil, have always existed. At no point is there any discontent uh, discontinuity. There was never a time when death appeared or a moment where the evil, when the evil changed the nature of the universe. God made the world as it is, evolution as the instrument of change and diversity. People try to tell us that Adam had a perfect relationship with God until he sinned, and all we need to do is repent and accept Jesus in order to restore that original relationship. But perfection like this has never existed. There never was such a world. Trying to return to it, either in reality or spirituality, is a delusion. Unfortunately, it is still central to much evangelical preaching. Well, of course, it's central to evangelical preaching. Otherwise, what hope is there in Christ? What, do we all get to feel better ourselves, better about ourselves or something like that? That's what Christianity is now? What is the gospel in these professing Christians' minds? You have to ask that. You know, Spong makes it plain. And it's implied by Ambrose that the Bible clearly teaches that there was a perfect creation, but it's now marred by sin. They recognize that that's what the Bible plainly says. But they accept the millions of years history for the fossil record. An authority outside of scripture, as a matter of fact, 
an authority they obviously consider in much more authority than the Bible. So to be consistent, they have to throw out original sin and death being the penalty for man's rebellion. The God of an old earth can't therefore be the God of the Bible who's able to save us from sin and death. So Christians who compromise with the millions of years, attributed by many scientists to, be, to the fossil record, could be seen in that sense as seemingly worshiping a different God. It's a cruel God of an old earth. Remember, if you've got such a loving God, why is there so much pain and suffering in this world? If you believe God used billions of years of pain and suffering to create, you'd have to say that the loving God of the Bible used death and suffering to create and called it very good. You see, the problem with people like Sagan and Darwin was that they didn't understand or wouldn't accept what the Bible makes perfectly clear is that there was a perfect world to begin with. It was created all very good. However, in Adam, we rebelled, as it says in Romans 5. And the resulting judgment of death and the curse changed the very good world into one that's groaning in pain until now, as you can read in Romans 8.22. You see, when they were looking at this present world, these men weren't looking at the nature of God, but the results of our sin. What a difference that whole point of view makes because it allows someone to understand that the character of God is loving and just, not cruel and capricious. Take this quote from British personality and atheist uh, Stephen Fry when he was asked about what he'd say when he meets God when he dies. Why should I respect a capricious, mean-minded, stupid God who creates a world which is so full of injustice and pain? Atheism isn't just about believing there is no God, but on the assumption that there is one, what kind of God is he? It's perfectly apparent. He's monstrous, utterly monstrous, and deserves no respect whatsoever. Did you see that? Atheism isn't just about not believing in God, but what kind of God is he? The God of an old earth would have to be seen as monstrous. But the God of the Bible, the God of mercy, grace, and love, sent his one and only son to be a man. Of course, he was still God nonetheless. To become our sin bearer so that we could be saved from sin and its final effect of eternal separation from God. Let's look at 2 Corinthians 5.21. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. You see, there's no doubt the God of an old earth destroys the gospel. It introduces the concept of death before Adam sinned. It attacks the character of God, which leads to false beliefs about God, both inside the church and outside of it as well. Now, if this is the first time that you've thought about these things as a believer, there's probably a ton of questions that are flooding your mind right now. So, okay, so the, the Bible teaches a young earth, but, but how do you explain the fossils and, and, and radiometric dating and carbon dating and, and so on? Well, I encourage you to tune in each week as we're going to be covering various topics here on the show. But 
the best thing to do is go to the AnswersInGenesis.org website. And that's just like it sounds, the words AnswersInGenesis.org and hit the Answers tab and you can access hundreds and hundreds of free articles, many of them with input or written by PhD scientists and theologians to help you understand these, from a, these, these questions from a biblical worldview. And you can visit the store page and you can see thousands of resources that you can get as well to help you and your family get answers. I mean, it is so important to get equipped. Okay, but here's the thing. A vast number of conservative theologians have accepted the millions of years narrative, but in an attempt to get around the obvious problem of the idea of death being in the world before Adam's sinning, one tactic you need to be aware of is that they're trying to say, sure, look, maybe Romans 5.12 says that men died at the time of the fall, but that doesn't mean that there was no animal death before Adam's fall. And they're going to argue that, well, look, there's no significant doctrines impacted, you know, if, if you say that animals have been killing each other for millions of years prior to Adam's sinning. Now, again, it's clear that most of them have never really considered the theological implications of allowing animal death, disease, predation, extinction prior to Adam's sin, uh, you know, in the garden. Again, it, when... When you're challenged about the inconsistency of thinking God set up a world where Adam and Eve would be, you know, wandering around an original good creation, you know, where, where animals are ripping each other's guts out and dying of cancer, well, they usually point, you know, point to the evidence, the scientific evidence, overwhelming scientific evidence and say, well, you know, it, it's easy to harmonize the, the, the Bible with this, this concept. And this attitude, well, it's, it's promoted in theology textbooks, widely used in conservative evangelical seminaries, colleges, and churches all the time. A good example would be Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology, produced in 1994. Now, Wayne's stuff is really helpful in many, many ways, okay? And he's also immensely uh, influential. His work's been translated into at least eight major languages. And like many other evangelicals who reject the young earth view, Grudem does believe that the fall had an impact on the whole creation. And he teaches that when Jesus returns and renews the creation, this is from his systematic theology book here. I'll just read it. Page 836. He says, there will be no more thorns or thistles, no more floods or droughts, no more deserts or uninhabitable jungles, no more earthquakes or tornadoes, no more poisonous snakes or bees that sting or mushrooms that kill. But this outstanding, highly respected theologian, apparently doesn't see how the concept of millions of years of death before the fall destroys the Bible's teachings about the goodness of the original creation. The prospect of goodness in the new heaven and earth and the goodness of God himself is at question here because the timing of animal death directly impacts at least three critical doctrines. First is the goodness of the original creation. Genesis 1 says six times that during creation week, God called the creation good. And when he finished creating on day six, he actually called everything very good. Read that in Genesis 1.31. So this term is clearly chosen to emphasize goodness, which is a core concept of scripture. How good was it? Well, the Bible says in God's initial very good creation, very good state, that man, land animals, and birds were originally vegetarian. In Genesis 1, 20, 29 and 30, let's read that. 
And God said, Behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed in it as fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. Okay, so did you see that? Everything is eating plants in the beginning. So no carnivorous activity. But in the fossil record, we see something different. In the fossil record, we find creatures fossilized inside the stomachs of other creatures. So this carnivorous behavior must have occurred after the very good creation was cursed in Genesis 3. And that's why biblical creationists, of course, do believe in the worldwide flood described in Genesis 6 to 9, which occurred 1,650 years approximately after creation, after sin and death entered into the world because of the fall. And once you understand that's where the fossils, the majority of the fossils came from, it all makes sense why you'd see evidence of bad things in the fossil record because it happened after the fall. But if it happened before the fall, it doesn't make any sense. Now, another key doctrine is the nature of the goodness lost at the fall and needing restoration. Creation was once harmonious, but that's now gone. Adam and Eve's sin resulted in God's judgment on the whole creation, not just man. God's judgment affected other aspects of creation. The serpent, which Satan used to deceive Eve, for example, was cursed, resulting in a physical transformation of some kind as it began to, to crawl on its belly, as we see in Genesis 3.14. And since the, the verse says that the serpent was cursed more than or above all other animals, it's also reasonable to assume then that other animals could have been altered, either morphologically or at least behaviorally. Also, God cursed the ground itself, resulting in thorns and thistles appearing. But we see fossil thorns in rock evolutionists claim are millions of years old, which would mean there were thorns before Adam sinned. Why would Christ have worn a crown of thorns, which symbolized him taking the punishment for Adam's sin, then, if they were around before Adam sinned? See, in the New Testament, we, we see again this connection between mankind's sin and, re and, and, and redemption and nature's corruption and liberation. Romans 5.12. We've read this before, but let's do it again. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Okay. So again, what they're going to try to say is, well, look, Paul's talking about men dying, not animals, which is true. But it's with Adam's fall in mind that Romans 5.12, you know, that, that Paul tells us that in Romans 8.19 to 23, that more than mankind was affected. That's what he's getting at. Let's read that. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption to sons, the redemption of our bodies. So you see that? The, the whole creation groans in slavery to corruption and futility, 
waiting for Christ's final redemptive work at his second coming. Scripture depicts this corruption as a bad thing. It's an imposition on the proper order of things. But if you believe that life's been around for hundreds of millions of years, like the evolutionists claim, namely that there you know, have been five major mass extinction events preceding mankind's arrival on the planet, and, it, and you know, they say that 65 to 90% of all species on earth went extinct on, in those events. So if that's true, then, then what impact did the fall have on creation? None. I mean, death has always been here. In fact, if death, disease, and extinction really did occur for millions of years, then the, the very good creation of Genesis 1 was considerably worse than the world we now inhabit. The curse should actually be viewed as a blessing since the earth hasn't seen 65 to 90% of all species go extinct since Adam sinned. I mean, in this scenario, the post-fall world is more creature-friendly than the very good pre-fall world the evolutionary story says happened. So, to what state is Jesus going to restore this groaning creation in the future? What exactly will this restoration look like? I mean, the Bible's pretty clear on what it's supposed to be like. Revelation 21.4 says, God's word says, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death will be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Okay, so, but if in the beginning there was death, mourning, crying, and pain, then what will the restoration of all things be like? It just makes the biblical narrative sound silly. I mean, if millions of years of history occurred before man, you've got to ask why a good God would create some things miraculously and then allow millions of years of animal suffering and death and extinction before creating other things miraculously. What kind of God would create and then destroy billions of creatures, uh, you know, that man would never be able to rule over as God obviously intended for in Genesis 1, 26 and to 28? You see, our confidence in God's promise to prepare a better place in the future depends on a better place without animal death having existed before Adam's sin. You see, at Christ's return, he will complete his works of redemption. Acts uh, 30 to 20 to 21 and Colossians 1, 15 to 20 teach that he will restore and redeem all things to a similar an even better state than the pre-fall world. Even the possibility of sin will be no more. So let's look at Isaiah 11, 6-9 for a second. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together. And a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like an ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of knowledge of the Lord and the wa as the waters cover the sea. Now, I know, I understand, okay, that there are some arguments amongst various denominations about these verses. But regardless of our differences, you know, regarding the, the correct interpretation exactly of Isaiah uh, 11, 6 to 9, the principle expressed there strongly implies that when Christ restores the creation, animals will no longer eat each other. 
human disease, suffering, death, they'll cease because the curse will be no more. The curse came upon creation at Adam's fall and will be removed when the last Adam consummates history. And by the way, do you remember Spong and Ambrose's comments from earlier? This is what they could clearly tell that scripture taught. They just don't believe it because of their belief in the story of millions of years versus the flood causing the rock layers. You see, the cosmic impact of Christ's final redemptive work has been the orthodox Christian view for the last 2,000 years, and it needs to remain so. And hopefully, as we've seen here, the idea of millions of years of animal death also contradicts the Bible's teachings about the nature of the pre-fall creation and the present world. It also assaults the character of God. And it also undermines the certain hope the Bible gives of Christ's future redemptive work. Once this significance becomes clear, Christ-loving, Bible-believing Christians, you really have one choice. Death, including the death of animals, began after Adam's fall. Okay, we're winding up here. Um, I hope this has shed some light on the true cost of compromising Christianity and the plain reading of Genesis with ideas like millions of years and the story of evolution. And I'm just going to end off here with a quote from a Bible skeptic, the Darwin historian, Peter Bowler, who said this. If Christians accepted that humanity was the product of evolution, even assuming the process could be seen as an expression of the Creator's will, then the whole idea of original sin would have to be interpreted. Fall from falling from an original state of grace in the Garden of Eden, we have risen gradually from our animal origins. And if there was no sin from which we needed salvation, then what was the purpose of Christ's agony on the cross? Great question. From a Bible skeptic. Why do they seem to see these issues so clearly? And yet so many of our Christian leaders buy into this stuff. I mean, it would shock you to look into what many, many, many of our Christian leaders actually believe about the topic of origins. Some of them look at, have looked into it. Some of them haven't. But for those who have and continue to hold to this, it's shocking. The cost of compromising with the plain reading of Genesis compromises the gospel. So if you're appreciating this content, please visit the AnswersInGenesis.ca website and consider donating to the ministry. And whatever platform, of course, you're accessing this on likely has some combination of features that allow you to subscribe or like or share or leave a review. And we'd really appreciate it because it's probably the best thing that you can do to help us continue to do outreach. So until next time, I'm Cal Smith. Blessings to you.